When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Businesses of all sizes have been affected by COVID-19. In response to this, Postmedia Solutions has created a five-step guide aimed to help you adapt your business during this global crisis. To get this free guide, visit postmediasolutions.com slash adapt. Coronavirus outbreaks at meat processing plants in Canada have forced some of the country's largest slaughterhouses to close as hundreds of workers fight COVID-19. It's the latest shock to Canada's food supply during the pandemic, and it's leaving cattle, hog, and chicken farmers with a difficult decision. Will they have to cull their herds? I'm Emily Jackson, and you're listening to Down to Business. This week, we're joined by veteran food market analyst Kevin Greer, who has 30 years of experience in the market with a focus on meat, poultry, and livestock. Kevin and I discussed why the local meat industry was one of the first to be hit by the novel coronavirus outbreak in China, how big the risk of a meat shortage is, and why this break in the supply chain will hurt farmers. We've had a number of meat plant closures so far, including in beef, poultry, pork across Canada. I'm wondering what has been your reaction to the closures that we've seen? I guess each day uh, offers new surprises. Two, I guess three weeks ago when I heard that uh, the Cargill plant, beef plant in High River was down to one shift. I literally could not believe it. Now it's entering its second week of not even operating on one shift. So the levels of uh, disbelief or things that are happening are, are changing rapidly. And so that's the main thing at first is, I guess, in some respects, it's not surprising, but the level of magnitude caught me by surprise. And the level of magnitude has been remarkable, not just in Canada. It has been really big for slaughterhouse closures across uh, the U.S. and Brazil as well. The three countries put together represent about 65% of the world's meat trade. What do you think this means for global supply chains? Global supply chains have, have been really under a certain amount of pressure in a positive way in the sense that there was a lot of meat that was targeted into China because they, they came up with a significant shortfall in latter part of 2018 and most most of 2019 because of an animal health disease in their swine herd. So the world was all set up to export a lot of pork and other proteins into China. So that happened at a time, again, when the, the supplies of meat in, in Canada, the United States, and Brazil, and around the world were actually increasing. So there was a lot of interest and enthusiasm about the prospects of moving a lot of product into, into China. This, this sort of crunch at the slaughterhouses is coming at a time when we were actually setting up so we could produce more meat products to send to China. Right. So then the coronavirus happened, so to speak, with its focus in China, which essentially shut China down early in the new year, especially around the Chinese New Year. And so a lot of meat that was destined for China found itself on the water. You know, we had this big supply and then Chinese New Year hit, so we were expecting to ship even more meat products to China. And then coronavirus kind of put a stop to that. Right. 
So there was big enthusiasm about exports into China at the end of 2019. Exports from Canada to the United States into China surged. And you could tell early in the new year that those exports were continuing to surge into China. And then, of course, coronavirus hit in China first and the country shut down. That meant demand for our meat and poultry in Canada, the United States, and Brazil, and the EU shut down as well. So there's a lot of product backing up. And so that was really the start of how coronavirus was impacting the meat industry negatively. It uh, impacted the meat industry negatively by decreasing the demand for our product, which we had hoped to to be able to send into China at profitable prices. So we found ourselves with a great deal of supply and significantly reduced demand starting off in, in January and February. Always a problem for an industry that, you know, relies on animals and growing animals and then processing them in an efficient way. Can you please tell us a bit about the meat industry structure in Canada? How does it work from the time a farmer raises an animal to a consumer buying the meat at the grocery store? Okay, cattle and hogs are two separate industries, obviously, and they're a little bit different in terms of getting from the farm to the to the retail counter. So I'll start off with cattle. Essentially, the cattle industry really starts off with a farmer or a rancher, and you can picture them with a cow herd, a female herd. And the basic purpose of the rancher or the, the farmer who has cows is to produce a calf. And the calf is sold from the herd into a separate operation, typically called a, a feedlot, a cattle feeder. A guy who takes calves or yearling, yearling animals and puts them on a grain-based diet. Those animals are fed and then they're sold to a packing plant. And about... 75% of the industry, 80% of the industry is based in, in the West. So most of the Canadian uh, cattle industry and beef industry is based in the West and particularly in Alberta. Ontario also has a, a sizable industry. Like I say, it starts off with the cow-calf, the rancher, and then it goes into a feedlot and from the feedlot into the, into the packing plant. The packer or the processor then in turn sells the meat to retailers. Probably in, on the beef side, about 50% goes to retailers and another 50% or so goes to the food service industry. And of course, there's also exports into the United States and Japan and, and around the world. So that's basically the structure of our beef and cattle industry. On the, the hog side, it's a little bit more integrated, so to speak, in the sense that you've got farmers who have a sow, the female, again, sow, and the sow's job is to produce wiener pigs. Sometimes, and matter of fact, often, it's one operation that goes from the sow straight through to the selling a, a market hog to a packer. Other operations might sell little wiener pigs into, into other operations that are nurseries or, or finishing operations. But essentially, it goes from, again, the sow producing a wiener pig, and from the wiener pig, it gets fed into a market hog that is purchased by packers. And again, the packers do the same thing as the beef packers. They sell to retailers food service and around the world. How much of our industry is exported versus used for local consumption? Cattle and hogs are very, very, very different. If you include the, the pigs that are exported, probably about 65-70% of our pork industry is, is exported all around the world, the United States, Japan, China, and so on. On the beef side, it's much less export-oriented, much more domestically oriented, probably about 35% of the product is exported and the rest is, stays domestically. They're both very, very different industries and uh, one is much, much more export-oriented and that's the, the pork industry. But again, the cattle industry and the beef is also, exports are also very important. 
With the cattle industry, there is a lot of concentration, as you said, not only in Alberta when it comes to raising cattle, but when it comes to meat processing as well. And I think the coronavirus pandemic has really highlighted this. One facility in High River, Alberta, the Cargill plant there, is responsible for processing more than one third of Canada's beef production. This particular plant is the one you spoke about earlier that is facing a prolonged closure. It's reported more than 500 cases of COVID-19 at the plant. What does this, this sort of concentration of processing at one facility, what does that mean for Canada's industry? You know, this this type of discussion is is not something that's isolated to strictly um, the coronavirus. You know, these types of discussions have been occurring among economists and farmers for as long as I've been involved in the industry, 30 years. You know, why does the industry concentrate? What are the benefits of concentration? What are the the problems with concentration? So this is not a new discussion remotely. Part of the reason the industry concentrated was during the 80s and 90s, there was a decline in demand for red meat. Canadians and Americans were eating less red meat, and therefore there's less need for, for plants and, and uh, farmers to produce it. That used to be something we talked about a lot back you know, 20 years ago. In recent years, the demand for red meat has improved. I know a lot of people find that surprising, but it's it's great to see that the demand for red meat in Canada and the United States has improved significantly in the last five years. But like I say, part of the reason for the consolidation was strictly that the industry uh, was less demand for the product. The other thing, too, is the consolidation that occurs in every industry. Larger plants, again, in any industry tend to have lower costs and tend to be more competitive. Larger plants can generate typically more revenue per unit of output. They can do more with the product. There's critical mass adding value to things like hides and uh, inedible product. So for a variety of business and economic reasons, the industry has consolidated. And again, just like it has in, in many other industries, the, the reality of it is is that if we would have, like we did, I remember back in the late 80s in Ontario, we had 19 packing plants in Ontario. Now we effectively have two. If we had 19, would we be better off? Where well, Chances are we would have higher priced product. Chances are these these companies wouldn't be able to compete anyway against in the rest of the world. So, I mean, I understand the arguments, but at the same time, there's, there's other, these types of discussions have been going on for an awful long, long time. And with regard to the virus, you could say, well, it's showing itself to have been a bad thing. But again, this is an extraordinary circumstance. I wouldn't really use it as an example for anything. Mm, So it's that concentration was meant to keep costs down, meant so Canada could keep competing on a global scale. What is this going to mean for meat prices right now as we see not only a variety of plants shut down across the country? Yeah, well, we had a surge in meat prices in, in March as Canadians decided to pillage the stores of all the meat products that we could find in addition to the, the toilet paper that we were looking for too, for, for whatever reason. So the prices surged at the packer level. In other words, the interchange between the packer and the retailer. Prices surged in March because of, again, as I say, the pillaging that went on in the stores. So that was a demand-related increase in price. Prices dropped fairly dramatically after the the shelves were restocked and the reality of no more food service business set in. So in other words, 
products that normally got sold into food service no longer had that market, and a lot of product was finding its way onto onto the market that would normally have gone through uh, food service. So prices in March skyrocketed and then, then collapsed. Now, as we move into April, or at least in the beginning of April, when things were still relatively normal, believe it or not, uh, at the plant level, prices stabilized. And now as we got into mid, we started to have these slowdowns and these closures. So I think you can probably guess what's happened to price when you've got plants closed in Canada, as well as big slowdowns and plants closed in the United States. The availability of beef and pork has decreased. And therefore, again, you guessed it, prices at the packer level have uh, once again skyrocketed. So in March, prices skyrocketed because of demand. And in April, prices skyrocketed because of supply. Now, when it comes to supply, we're at this kind of odd precipice, I think, where there's that excess in the market from the food service industry not buying as much as they typically would, but that shortage because the processing plants can't physically process the animals. How high is the risk of a severe meat shortage here? Well, the the main risk, the main people that are being hurt right now are the farmers. I don't want to go through this conversation with without talking about just how very, very bad the situation is at the farm level because of the fact that these farmers cannot get their their livestock marketed in a timely manner. So they're the ones that are on the, the raw end of this equation right now. Specifically, with regard to your question about shortages, you know, everything's relative. I think for a short period of time, perhaps the next two to three weeks, production is going to be nowhere near where we thought it was going to be. And so there will be there will be some shortages. Some big retailers are, are scrambling, not some, they're all scrambling. I think for the most part, we're going to see the, the big retailers with their shelves reasonably well stocked. I think some secondary distributors and food service, food outlets and so on that normally would have had supply are going to be ones that are probably on the short end of the stick. Personally, I am not concerned about shortages because again, I think that uh, the infrastructure is there to get this done. It's just a matter of the fact these plants are going to have to ensure that that steps are taken and they've they've done yeoman's work. I don't want to undersell what these plants have done in a short period of time to keep their workers safe. The reality of it is though is that they're right now experiencing a very, very difficult time and so that once that works its way through, we'll get back to normal and I'm I'm expecting probably the next two to three weeks to be the worst. So when it comes to, you know, you, you say that the the plants have taken steps to keep their workers safe, and yet we've seen this this story being told that plants across Canada, not only here, but also in the U.S., Brazil, as I mentioned, why is it so difficult, do you think, to stop outbreaks from occurring in processing facilities? Well, you know, nothing good is coming out of this, but but one thing that I have noticed is a high level of cooperation between the workers and the companies in the pork industry across Canada. In other words, there's a lot of mutual respect shown on on both sides to try and get this thing done and try to accommodate the, the farmers as well as the workers because both, of course, are, are critical. So I'm I'm heartened, actually, by the level of cooperation that's going on that I've observed between the union and between the companies. And so, like I say, nothing good is coming out of this, but that's one thing I think that I could, could highlight. 
in terms of the big beef plants in the West, again, extraordinary efforts are taking place to put plexiglass or barriers between between workers. But in terms of the answer to your question, this is a high la- highly labor-intensive industry. A lot of workers are required, and the workers are often in close proximity. Not only that, but um, there's a lot in, especially in the West, there's a carpooling, which was common, less so common now as companies are trying to step up and help workers get into work safely. But there's a lot of things that came together, again, the reality of it is working in close quarters, labor intensive, and people coming in, commuting, uh, carpooling, and and so those kind of things come together. But like I say, I don't think we are able to say that the companies were not acting responsibly, and I think they're working in the best interest to try and try and stay ahead of this thing. Mm. How how long can the plants stay closed before farmers might have to take some drastic steps? Might have to cull their herds. That, that, that would vary by farmer, of course, depending on the situation that they're in, the level of market ready. But I, I think that the situation is, is particularly challenging for the hog sector because with cattle, there's more of a, I guess you could say, a sleeve between when they're ready to go and when they really have to go. And I think that on the hog end of it, there's less of a, there's less of a window there. So answer to your question is, I really don't know, but I think that it's, it's very close to being, um, a very, very critical situation in the hog sector in North America. Now, why is the hog sector particularly vulnerable to this? I think the physiology of the animal, like, for example, a bird, a chicken, it's going to have a very, very narrow window based on its small size. Uh, it's going to go to market, say, between five and six weeks from a, from a chick into a, into a bird. With a hog, same thing. It's it's going to take about six months to get to market, but when it's ready to go, it's pretty well got to go. It can only grow to, to so large. In the cattle industry, the marketing window can often be two months, something like that. Because of the size of the animals and the, and the length of time and the type of feed and so on, it's just a wider marketing window in, in cattle than any other industry. doesn't mean that there aren't farmers that, that need to move their cattle now but I think the situation is a little more flexible in that industry than the other ones. It's interesting with the chicken farmers as well. You know, they operate under a supply management system and they made some decisions when this pandemic started to happen to reduce their stock in May and June to deal with less demand from restaurants. It's interesting, I think, to see the time frame. You know, the chicken farmers can make that decision. But when you're talking about animals like hogs, like cattle, they take a longer time to grow. It's it's difficult to make those choices. So how do we avoid a situation where we're seeing widespread culling? You know, food waste is particularly heartbreaking when we're talking about animals in the first place. But I think it's even more difficult at a time when we're talking about potential shortages. Well, again, in terms of the reference to supply management, in some respects, again, it goes back to the nature of the of the animal. In the United States, chicken industry, they don't have supply management, but they have vertically integrated companies, and so they're doing the same thing internally. They're they're adjusting their flocks to meet up with their abilities to handle the uh, the birds. So. It's the nature of the animal is what makes the difference. And in terms of your question about widespread culling, again, it's really not something that I'm qualified to talk about. The only thing I, again, would say is that the situation is extraordinarily serious. And it is, again, the farmer. When it's all said and done, it's on the, the raw end of this particular situation because I believe that the meat situation will be dealt with. We've got huge storage stocks in Canada. 
we've also got big production capacity, even though it's not being fully utilized now. So I'm not so concerned there, but it is at the farm end that the, that the real issue is. What sort of interventions do you think needs to be seen, whether it's a government intervention or on the industry side, to help farmers stay solvent throughout this crisis? There are discussions going on, urgent discussions going on between, say, the Canadian cattlemen and the on the pork side, Canada Pork, Canadian Pork Council. Those are the lead people that would be discussing policy issues. From my perspective as a market analyst, I can add the uh, you know the ammunition to the to the severity of it. But again, I don't think anybody needs to tell these organizations just how severe the situation is. Their producers are letting them know in no uncertain terms. And I think that these discussions are going on. And I think that uh, these organizations have always been strong on policy ends, and I think that they're they're on top of it. What sort of lessons can we take away from what's happened in the pandemic? I know you said it's, you know, it is an unprecedented situation, but what what does it say about how we run our meat supply chains in Canada and any vulnerabilities that system may have and what we can change going forward? Yeah, well, I've seen academics, of course, saying that, you know, you can never use, uh, never let a crisis go uh, without making it prove your point. They're saying it just shows the vulnerability of our supply chain. I would entirely disagree. Our supply chain, our food supply chain is remarkable in Canada, remarkably robust. I remember getting a call from a, a reporter once saying, well, how do you how do you tell consumers how to deal with all this choice that they've got? And I'm thinking, I said, you know, you, you really need the world's smallest violin. You're talking about consumers have a remarkable choice of everything year round at extraordinarily low cost. The amount that we we spend on food is the lowest in the world and as it gets lower year after year and we get a supply of fresh food year round so again our food supply chain is remarkably robust we've got a situation where unprecedented global pandemic is causing it stress not surprisingly um, what i would be surprised at is if we're not addressing it and out of it much quicker than most people think. So I'm definitely not one of those people that are saying, look at, see, I told you so. I think this is, an exa- again, it's extraordinarily strong. And uh, the last thing we need is to take the wrong lessons out of this. But what about like the cost? Obviously, we enjoy remarkable choice here at a low cost in Canada when it comes to our food. But does this reveal, you know, this is at the cost of, say, the workers and the plants that are having to expose themselves to increased risk of virus transmission based on just the way it's set up? You know, is is there anything at, at what price does the or low cost of our food come at? I wonder. I'm, again, I'm not going to make a connection between the virus and and that. We have, as I say, a lot of cooperation going on. These meat plants, the thing that amazes me about them is how clean they are all the time. I remember, you know, going into different meat plants, you can clearly see these are, these are food plants. They're meticulous in their cleanliness. So I think probably as time goes on, it's going to be even more so. But again, the level of cleanliness in these plants is, has always been very good. The level of hygiene in the plants is extraordinary. So, and in terms of the workers, no question about it, they are on the front lines and, you know, we're all giving a lot of kudos to medical staff and so on. And we don't give enough credit to the, the food workers. So uh, I think you're, you're absolutely right. But again, I, I'm not, I don't want to draw 
extreme or wrong lessons from this because this is an extreme situation. And I think, again, I wouldn't wouldn't want to uh, do anything except tip my hat to them and thank them for everything that they're doing. Certainly, I think this situation has drawn attention to people working across the food supply chain, whether that's in the meat processing plants or the people working at the grocery stores who are putting their health on the line daily. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. That was Kevin Greer, veteran food market analyst. Thank you so much for listening to Down to Business. And as always, thank you to our team. Music and production by Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussain, and web support by Pamela Heaven. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. Down to Business will be back tomorrow with our special series on Shockproofing Canada. I'm Emily Jackson, and until then, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.